When you're in the market for a new car, you want a vehicle that conquers your daily commute, easily handles the elements, and looks great too. You need the reliability of a Toyota and the confidence that your investment will last. Why? Because after all the carpools, shopping trips, and weekends out, you want a car that still has plenty of miles left in it and holds its value for a great trade-in deal. That's where Toyota leads the pack as the number one resale value brand for 2024, according to Kelly Blue Book's KBB.com. So check out the all-new, fully redesigned 2025 Camry or test drive a stylish and affordable Corolla sedan or hatchback. And remember, when you choose Toyota, you're not just buying a car for today, you're investing in trade-in value for tomorrow. Visit buyatoyota.com, the official website for deals, for more. Vehicles projected resale value is specific to the 2024 model year. For more information, visit kellybluebookskbb.com. Kelly Blue Book is a registered trademark of Kelly Blue Book Company, Incorporated. Toyota, let's go places. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Happier, a podcast about how to be happier. This week is a milestone episode for us. It is our very first Happier Podcast book club episode, and we are so excited. I'm Gretchen Rubin, a writer who studies happiness, good habits, and human nature. I'm in New York City, and with me is my sister and fellow book lover, Elizabeth Kraft. That's me, Elizabeth Kraft, a TV writer and producer living in Los Angeles. And Gretchen, I cannot believe that this is the first time I've been in a book club. (laughs) How is that possible? I I don't know. If you'd asked me, I would have said, oh, I've been in a million book clubs. But then I thought about it and I thought, oh, my gosh, I have never been in a book club. I mean, you're in a Mahjong club and you're not in a book club. I mean, that is. I know. Yes. So now you are, though. We've we've tackled Now I am. Now you are. Yes. Thank goodness. But before we talk about our big book of the episode, which we're so excited to launch into. I do want to talk about my own book and say thank you to everyone for all the interest and enthusiasm in Outer Order, Inner Calm. It's so exciting. It's so fun for me. I so appreciate the response that I've gotten from everyone. So thank you so much. I'm on the road still for my Outer Order Inner Calm book tour, and we are going to do Happier Podcast live events. You can get all yes. the information at GretchenRubin.com slash events. Coming up, we're going to talk a lot more about the live events and what to expect and where we're going and all that. But in the meantime, you can mark your calendar and get the basics by going to GretchenRubin.com slash events. I cannot wait, Gretch. And now it's time for the book club. So this choice, Elizabeth, was so easy for us. When we were like, we're going to do a Happier Podcast book club, we knew that we wanted to do this book And everyone has been loving this book. It has been a huge bestseller. It's just making a huge splash because it's such a terrific book. 
The author is Danny Shapiro. Danny Shapiro is the best-selling author of four memoirs, all of which I've read, Me and too. five novels. Her most recent book hit the shelves a couple of months ago, and it's a big bestseller and getting tremendous buzz. It is her fifth memoir, Inheritance, a memoir of genealogy, paternity, and love. Yes, and here's the official description. What makes us who we are? In the spring of 2016, through a genealogy website to which she had whimsically submitted her DNA for analysis, Danny Shapiro received the stunning news that her father was not her biological father. She woke up one morning and her entire history, the life she had lived, crumbled beneath her. Inheritance is a book about secrets, secrets within families, kept out of shame or self-protectiveness, secrets we keep from one another in the name of love. It is the story of a woman's urgent quest to unlock the story of her own identity, a story that has been scrupulously hidden from her for more than 50 years, years she had spent writing brilliantly and compulsively on themes of identity and family history. And inspired by this project, we should say, Danny recently launched an absolutely riveting podcast called Family Secrets. Yes, I love her new podcast. So, Danny, welcome. It's so great to have you here in the studio with me. It's fantastic to be with you. Yay! This is so exciting. And Danny, before we launch into Inheritance, I have mentioned this before on the podcast, but I have to tell everyone again, you were my first writing teacher at Columbia. It was just so seminal for me. I remember the very first writing exercise you had us do. And I don't know if you still use this. Uh, <laughs> what, what was it, Liz? But you said, this is their wedding photo. And then you said, okay, now write something. And I started writing and I'm like, oh my God, like this is good for me. Like I just felt very natural. And that was sort of like the first moment when I was a writer. So thank you. That's amazing. That's amazing to hear. I love that. And did I actually give you a photo or was it the idea that it was your parents' wedding photo? No, there was no actual photo. You just said, yeah, maybe it was, this is your, my parents' wedding photo. Maybe that was it. How interesting. And Oh, my gosh. Now. Complicated in well, retrospect. In retrospect. Oh, my gosh. There's a whole level to that. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That is crazy. Wow. Wow. And it's a special treat for me to have you here with us, live and in person in New York City. Now we're going to go in to ask all the questions. And I'm going to tell our listeners, spoilers will abound. We are going to be talking about everything from the beginning to the end, but it really doesn't make a difference in how much you love the book. I think even if you haven't read it, you can still enjoy this conversation. If you're inspired by this conversation to go read it, you will still enjoy it. It's that kind of book. You don't give it away. If yeah, I've been on book tour for the last six weeks, and yeah. I've been telling audiences exactly that because I know people who know the whole story intimately, and then they read the book and they write to me the next day and they say, I knew what happened and I was up till two o'clock in the morning to find out what happened. It it is that kind of book. It is that kind of book. But so to give everyone a flavor of the book, especially people who haven't yet had a chance to read it, would you please read like one of your favorite passages from the book? Of course. It had been 11, maybe 12 hours since Michael sat next to me in my office, a sequence of numbers unlocking the combination to a me I hadn't known. In those hours, I had felt sorrow, despair, alienation, numbness, shock, confusion, mostly confusion, and also something else. I was on the hunt. A fact-finding mission had taken me over, keeping the deeper reservoir of feelings at bay. Your father is still your father. It was a loving thing to say, meant to console, but I didn't know what it could possibly mean that my father was still my father. I was at the beginning of a journey, one that I would walk alone, step by treacherous step. 
It felt like a truism, a cliché, a salve. I loved my father with all my heart and had devoted much of my life to him. But in purely clinical terms, he wasn't my father. There was someone out there, some anonymous man, possibly alive, probably dead, maybe a sperm donor who had once been a medical student at the University of Pennsylvania, who was technically, biologically, my father. A point of fact. Wow, that gives me chills. Oh, that gives me, I mean, chills. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh, my God. Wow. Deanna, you have always written so much about your parents. Do you think ultimately this is why? Do you think it led you to this? Yeah, in a way I do. There's kind of two ways of thinking about it. And one is that it was sort of this divinely ordained thing that I was this writer and then had this story that I uncovered and was in a position to tell it, was in a Mm. position to write about it. What feels more resonant to me is that what made me a writer, that I was digging and digging, that each of my novels, I've written five novels, they all center around family secrets. Uh Every single one of them. It was my theme, the corrosive power of family secrets. And and then my memoirs. I mean, when I started writing memoir, I was like, why? Why all these memoirs? I mean, one, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But then I became this serial memoirist. I've read them all. They're all great. But why why the Digging, digging. I mean, like the image that I've had over the last few years, it's of this vast field with lots of little places where mounds of dirt were dug up. Like, okay, I'm digging here now. (laughs) Now I'm digging here. But I didn't know what I was digging for. Ah. And do you think the second you found out this secret, you knew you'd end up writing about it? Or was that just not even on your mind because you were so blown away? I mean, I think in the moment, I was blown away and shocked and sort of destabilized. But, you know, I think writers have this in common. There was also part of me that floated up to some corner Mm -hmm. in the ceiling and was already observing mm. and already trying to understand because writing is the way that I try to understand things. It's how I know what I feel is by writing. And so yeah. pretty quickly I was taking notes, but not in a clinical way, more like I was just trying to capture everything about the raw experience as I was experiencing it. Well, here's a question from a listener that is kind of touches on that. Diana asks, I've read all your memoirs and love them. The memoir is my favorite genre, but I notice when I talk about memoirs in my book clubs or with friends that a subset of people get very judgmental of the author. Although, of course, it takes tremendous courage and insight to be honest about one's flaws. How do you handle judgments as an artist and a human? That is a great question. So first of all, I think people somehow think that the bar is lower when it comes to memoir. Mm. And I actually think the bar is higher when it comes to memoir Mm. because the writer is combating a kind of skepticism or bias or sense in some critics and some readers that because it happened, Mm. the writer's then judged. I Mm. mean, certainly criticism Mm. does that all the time, like judges the life and not the writing, when in fact, the way that I think of it for myself is I'm telling a story and I'm telling it in the best possible way I can and I'm shaping the chaos of life into hopefully literature And that is different from taking imagination and making literature out of it. I've done both, but it's by no means easier to write memoir. And I just actually think, well, this is a story that I've told, and it happens to be carved out of the facts of my life. Do you find that people just come up to you and feel they can comment on your personal life? (laughs) Most often, they they tell me that they feel that they know me. Ah, Um, uh-huh. And which I take as a compliment. I mean, that means that they yeah. felt a sense of intimacy with my work. Sometimes what they'll do is they'll start telling me their deepest, darkest secrets. Yes. 
which yeah. I, it took me a long time to figure out why people were doing that. And I realized that it was because they're trying to say, you know, now I want you to know me. I feel like I know you. Yeah. It's interesting. Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote of her books, I told the truth, but not the whole truth. Yeah, exactly. Mm. It doesn't all belong. It doesn't all go in. Yes. Or I think it was Annie Dillard who once said something like, you don't get credit for living. Right. <laughs> it's got to do something. Now, here's an interesting question that I have to say I'd wondered myself. Carol asked, why was the dress on the book cover? I kept thinking there would be some mention of a special dress, but then there wasn't. Mm, so that dress was actually my dress. <gasps> Big um, oh. It was. It's, it's a great story. When my last book, Hourglass, uh, had just come out, I was on book tour and this fabric artist named Diana Waymar came up to me and she said, do you have an article of clothing that I could make something out of? Ah. And I immediately thought about that little dress because I was already in the throes of my discovery that eventually became Inheritance. Mm. I was thinking oh. a lot about myself as a little girl and everything that I didn't know. And that was a dress that I wore as a flower girl at a cousin's wedding. And it wasn't like in mothballs or anything. It was like lying in my basement in a, pi a pile of stuff. And I wish, Gretchen, if it were you, it probably would be very well preserved and taken. Right, would have been gone. Yeah, so or gone. Lucky. Exactly. Yeah. Mine was like, it was like sitting like next to the sort of defunct wine cellar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I remembered the dress and I sent it to her. And as she started working on it to make her art out of it, she started sending me pictures of the dress on, a, on her light box. And oh. when it came time to design a cover, and there were some ideas for covers that weren't really working, and I remembered the little dress, and I had oh. all of these images. It was a pure accident. And then the art director at my publisher, who's brilliant, because the dress was actually ice blue. Oh. She took the dress and made it into that sort of like flesh tone pinky color. Because if you think of the, yeah. if you think of it as ice blue, it would look like a disturbing story or a ghost yeah. story. And instead, mm. just this kind of, I childhood. Know. Childhood, exactly. Oh, that's beautiful. That is a great story. Danny Stephanie has an interesting question. She says, does Danny think that one of the reasons her bio family was so welcoming is because she is very accomplished? Did she ever get the impression that if she were a factory worker or a sales clerk, they may not have been so open to meeting? I asked because there is a lot of emphasis in the book on writing emails in a way that is non-offensive, direct, but polite. And had she written him with emojis and bad spelling and not as compelling a background if they would have dismissed her outright? It's a great question, and it's a tough question. I mean, I actually think that my being accomplished as a writer was initially detrimental <gasps> to— Because they must have known right away this could be a book— well, in my initial note to my biological father, it was a pretty brief note, but I wrote, I included my website. And I included mm -hmm. my website, honestly, so that he would see that I was relatively successful and that I had a family of my own and that I probably didn't want anything yes. from, from him. But at the same time, what I didn't really consider is that if you looked at my website on the homepage, and I thought, oh, he'll see a picture of me, he'll see how much like him I look. Yeah. But there was also a picture of me with Oprah, with her arm around me. And uh -huh. and that's not a plus in that situation. I mean, I yeah. really think right. he thought, this woman is going to like knock on my door, and I'm going to open it, and there's going to oh. be Oprah and a oh. camera crew. Oh, right. I never even thought of that, of course. And he's a very <gasps> private person. Yeah. And also, I think he dug a little bit into what I have written about over time, and I've written a lot about family yeah. and identity. And so, yeah, absolutely, I think... He was quaking in his boots at the idea that mm -hmm. I would somehow expose him or invade his family's privacy. 
No, that's not totally answering the question, though. I do think it's complicated uh-huh. when there is a real cultural divide or what seems like a divide. And I think certainly there are lots of situations in which that happens. I think one of the biggest fears, and I'm hearing this a lot as I'm on the road, one of the biggest fears of sperm donors when they get contacted, as they are right and left these days, is a kind of, um, what do you want from me? Yes. I don't think emojis or bad spelling are the issue. I think when there's a sense Mm -hmm. of a threat or Mm -hmm. a demand, that's more of an issue. And then sometimes there are just these men who are so terrified that they're going to feel anything as a threat or a demand. So... You know, Mm -hmm. there are really happy stories, and then there are really hard stories out there. Right. Well, I want to skip ahead because these were great questions, but these are three related questions that tie into what the point you were just making about your biological father. Chris asks, how did the, quote, Waldens feel about your book? Was it hard for them? How did they come to the point of being okay with it, if they were? Mary said, I would love to know how Danny's biological family reacted to inheritance and if she has continued to develop a relationship with them. And then Maggie says, she mentions getting to know her half-sister, but did her half-brothers want to contact? If so, how did it go? So this is all related to how did they come to grips with the idea of you as a writer, and then how did it unfold? Yeah, I mean, one of the things about our relationship, I think, is from the beginning, everybody really tried to do the right thing. Oh, which is so rare, and it takes you so far. It really does. (laughs) And just use polite manners. Really, can hurt to just no, be there was like, thoughtfulness, calm. there yes. was kindness, mm-hmm. there was care from the beginning. And so one of the things, not from the very start, but from the time that we started getting to know each other, is that I uh, was transparent about the fact that I was writing a book. Uh-huh. I, I mean uh-huh. Oh, so you didn't sandbag him. Not at all. Family. No. I think I wrote to him pretty early on something to the effect of, of course I will be writing about this, but I will protect your identity. Ah. And that was something that was very important to me to be honest about it, but also to protect his identity. I went to great lengths to protect his identity, even tiny little details in the book. Like, for example, there's a moment in the book where I reference that we are exchanging emails about like sharing poems with each other. And there's a particular poet whose work I send him and he writes back to me and thanks me for the poem and that he was going to put it up on his blog. (gasps) And all of a sudden, as I was writing the book, I thought, oh, I'm going to change the name of that poet. Because if you typed in yeah. the poet and retired physician and blog, maybe you could get to it. I mean, yes. things that were at yes. that level. Yeah. Yes. But, but as then, I might have done, as you know, I could see people doing that. A hundred percent. Yeah. And so then in that vein, when I finished the manuscript, um, I sent it to him. <gasps> you did. I did. And I've never in my life done that for any family member. You know, it's like a memoir 101 no-no right. to send <laughs> a manuscript, which right. is like wet clay. It's yeah. like sending somebody a mound of wet clay and saying, like, just don't touch the wet clay, but is the wet clay okay with you? Right. I mean, the inclination is to want to start changing things when yes. you receive a manuscript, any manuscript. But I did, and it was it was a risk, um, but it was one that I felt very strongly that I wanted to take because— First of all, I wanted to make sure that he felt his identity was protected. Maybe he would have seen something right. that I hadn't seen. Yeah. And I suppose I also wanted his blessing. I wanted him to I wanted him to like the book. So what did he say? He lo- he loved the book. Um and uh. he he wrote me a long response to it that was very caring and incisive and you know, bullet points. 
Really? And, yeah. He's kind of a very organized person, sort of like me. <laughs> One of my favorite moments was when your husband says, he even runs a Q&A the way you do. I was like, yeah. oh my gosh, that is crazy. You know, I mean, just when he, your husband was helping you with the research and seeing that well, yeah, you were looking first, at the video for the first, the first time, time. That, that we laid eyes on yeah, him. Yeah, so because I think you're a very, you would send an email with bullet points too. That's right. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. And then in terms of, there, he has three children, um, a, a, a daughter is the oldest and then two sons. The sons have not been all that interested in me, I think just because they're just not. Uh-huh. And I therefore have not been that interested in them. Also, I didn't grow up with a brother. It's like, what's a brother? I don't know. Mm, how, I don't. Right, right. I don't know how to have a brother. But I mean, if they had been interested, or if they were to be interested, I would be interested too. Again, this really just had to do with respecting each other's boundaries and privacy and sense of self. And his daughter, who's only six years younger than I am, grew up with two brothers and always kind of wanted to have a sister. And now, you know, now she has one. And so, yes, we are in touch. And but I will say this: one thing that I came to after I finished the book and knowing I was going out on book tour is that I decided that moving forward in my life with the Waldens, I am not going to keep talking about our life moving forward. I'll talk about everything as it relates to Mm. the book and the experience of the book. And the feeling really is, let's have a private life with each other. Right. That now the book has been sort of put to bed. That's one experience. And now you're going to go ahead and... Yeah. And I'll talk till kingdom come about the experiences in the book and everything that connects to what it's like to find a biological father and about identity and, you know, fatherhood and, you know, this whole experience that we're all in really of these secrets tumbling out of the closet, you know, in this moment that we're in. I think I almost feel like I was put here to have this conversation. Right. Um, Right. But also not the unfolding over the course of a lifetime of these new relationships and this modern family that, you know, we're all trying to figure out. Um, so Deirdre asked a question, um, but she says it's perhaps flippant, but um, it's interesting. How do, do you regret the tattoo? You get a tattoo. How do you feel about the tattoo? I love my tattoo. She loves her tattoo. Oh, oh can gosh. I take a picture of the tattoo to post on the I website? Know. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. So we uh, should have Danny say what it is oh, yeah. so everyone can picture it. Though. Yeah. So one of, the, one of the things really early on in my discovery, like within days, was I had the thought that had never crossed my mind before of wanting to get a tattoo. And some ah. pe- some people have wondered whether it was because I discovered that, in fact, I'm not entirely Jewish and that biologically I'm half Jewish because there's the prohibition in yes. Judaism for getting a tattoo. Not at all. I don't think it had anything to do with that. It was a feeling of, I have discovered that my body is actually not the body that <sighs> I thought it was. And I want, I want to mark that occasion. Kind of the transition. The before and after and the transition. Fascinating. And I thought long and hard. I think the reason I don't regret it is because I didn't like wander into a tattoo (laughs) that day. Kids, think it over. Yeah. 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 You know, had like a couple of beers. No, I didn't do that. (laughs) I thought about it for like a year and a half. Oh, wow. And I thought about exactly the tattoo artist I wanted to go to, this man named uh, Dr. Wu in Los Angeles, who it turns out is very, very, very hard to get in to see. He has millions of Instagram followers. So I had to like really, really chase him down. And I wanted him as he makes these very beautiful birds that also have compasses incorporated Uh. into their design. And I thought a lot about compasses and the sense of sort of direction and grounding and like knowing who I am and where I come from. Coming up, we'll hear a reader's favorite passage of inheritance. But first, this break. 
There are some stories about our father's life that I truly never get tired of hearing, from hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting. His retelling of the events always brings me joy. Just in time for Father's Day, I found the perfect gift that captures all his stories for our family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your father or father figure's life for years to come. And Gretch, you get a book of all these stories. And I love just keeping a book on the coffee table and anyone from any generation can see a story from dad, like what was his favorite toy or what was his first job? Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. Give all the fathers in your life a unique, heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash happier. That's storyworth.com slash happier to save $10 on your first purchase. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. I now work with a team, and I am here to say that finding the right candidate and hiring the right candidate is one of the very biggest and most important challenges to anyone who has a small business. LinkedIn knows that small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash Gretchen. That's linkedin.com slash Gretchen to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So Danny, this comes from Julie. I loved reading her comment. Julie writes, I really enjoyed listening to Inheritance. I was walking the dogs at the moment when Danny's aunt said she wouldn't let her go, and I began crying. I can even feel the tears coming now as I write this. This was such a lovely, true, special, important, vital thing, and everything about it is what I want the world to be like. So would you read the passage that I knew? The minute she mentioned it, I knew exactly the part that she was talking mm-hmm. about. This is when you go to visit your aunt, your father's sister. That's so beautiful, by the way. Thank you for that. I feel like the chance to expose the world in any way to my Aunt Shirley makes me very happy. <laughs> Everyone. <laughs> well, yeah, she must have loved the book. It's like she's a great character in it. She actually, um, she called me. I sent her one of the very first copies that I received from my publisher, and she called me as she was reading it, and she said, actually, I, I got it, and I was leafing through it, and I opened up to the page <gasps> of the scene between you and me. Oh, okay, so it's this Aww. very moment. So, yes. Oh, that's so beautiful. Chills again. Yeah. This is on page 136, by the way, if you want to go back and read it yourself. So just to set the scene, I had flown to Chicago to see my father's younger sister. She was 93 and a half years old at the time. She's now 95 and a half. Half years make a big difference when you're in your 90s, (laughs) when you're a toddler (laughs) and when you're in your 90s. (laughs) And I had just broken the news to her that my father had not been my biological father. I had wondered if she had known. Uh It became very clear to me that she had not known. And um, this is what she said. So you're saying, dad is not my biological father, I said. Five words, five words and a lifetime. Her eyes were locked onto mine. I was afraid she was going to stop breathing. Not a blink, not a sound. 
I feared it was as if I had said to her, you're not mine, I'm not yours, we don't belong to each other. It felt violent, the world around us fell away. She leaned slightly forward, reached out and grabbed my hand. I'm not giving you up, she said. The thin shell holding me together cracked and suddenly I was weeping with my whole body. And you'd better not be giving me up, she said. Every syllable, deliberate. I'm not giving you up, Cheryl, I sobbed. I was so afraid that... I have fewer years ahead of me than behind me, she said. And you are my brother's daughter. Oh, it's so beautiful. Mm. Yeah, it's just so powerful. She spent that whole afternoon trying to, like, stitch me back together again. It was... Mm. I mean, and she I, was just grappling with it for herself. She was just grappling mm-hmm. with it. She had had no idea. And I, I, I write in the book, it was the purest manifestation of love I have ever felt. She just went into this mode, somehow intuitively understanding what it would feel like to discover that. And at one point she said to me, you are not an accident of history. Ah, And mm. it became something over the course of the entire journey that I was on as I was writing the book. And I'm still on the journey. It became a kind of refrain as I would think about it. Like at one point later on, I thought either we're all accidents of history mm. or, or none of us are accidents mm-hmm. of history. Mm. But to make that discovery in midlife is to feel like an accident of history, uh-huh. at least initially. It is to feel sort of alien and other. And she somehow intuited that. Yes. That in that she could instantly go to the core of it and yes. understand. Yeah, she drilled right down all the way to the core of it and then did everything she possibly could to try to heal me. Ugh. And Danny, do you think that this whole journey ultimately made you closer to the family you were raised with? Your family? I think it made me closer. I mean, I was already so close to my Aunt Shirley. I don't know that we could have gotten closer, but in a way I do think we got closer because I, I think I had a habit of underestimating somehow what she would be able to tolerate or how she would be able to, you know, handle something like that. She just surprised me right and left with mm. her capacity to sort of step up and and move beyond, you know, in making any difference whether we were related biologically or not. Her larger family, I actually really haven't spoken with about this, so I don't know. Mm. Um, and that's really all the family. Well, there is also... My father's younger brother's, well, this gets complicated, but my father's younger brother's ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> Modern <laughs> they, family. They divorced when I was 13, <laughs> but she's still my aunt. And she has written me the most extraordinary notes. And at one point she wrote to me right when the book came out and said, I believe your parents would be proud of you. And I, I don't know about that, but the fact that she believed that Aww. meant a lot to me. Well, one thing that comes up in the book is how often throughout your life, I mean, clearly something that came up over and over was people questioning your identity kind of to your face. They would say, are you Jewish? You say you're Jewish. Are you really Jewish? And apart from it being so completely inappropriate for people to sort of, you know, question someone else's identity like that, um, in retrospect, how do you think about that? Because it clearly was a theme in the book that it was part of like the tiles falling into place or the feeling that there had been a secret or there had been something that you hadn't known or that was hidden from you in a way that was made you uneasy. Yeah, I think I fought it for so much of my life whenever anybody would say that to me. You don't look Jewish. You can't possibly be Jewish. I mean, because said, you are who you are. Right. You are who you are. Right. And they said it to me every day of my life. And inwardly, my feeling would be, you know, well, this is what Jewish looks like and what's your problem, you yeah. know? 
And so I didn't really think it affected me. I didn't connect it mm. to my feeling of otherness or not belonging. And now it's so clear that it had to be connected when you're told that you pretty much aren't who you believe you are, yeah. you know, every day. That yeah. is going to contribute to that sense of I don't belong or I'm different or why am I different or why don't I feel like I belong? And so when I made this discovery, I mean, very quickly it felt like, first of all, oh, that's why people were saying that. They were mm. actually seeing something that I couldn't see. Looking into the mirror, my own face reflected back at me, didn't actually make sense. And, uh -huh. you know, it's a charged thing to say, you know, doesn't look this way or doesn't look that way. But what I've come to actually is that when people were saying that, what they were recognizing is that I did look like I came from a different part of the world. I do look like I'm mm. from Western Europe. I look like my biological father and his family. And so there was this way in which I think that was constantly being commented on uh -huh. in some way in front of my parents, which must have made them supremely uncomfortable, uh -huh. unconsciously perhaps. But yet in our family, it was just something that was made light of. And it was always this joke. You know, when I was mm -hmm. three years old and I was the Kodak Christmas poster child wishing mm -hmm. the entire world <laughs> yeah. a Merry Christmas. By the way, I looked for that online. I was trying. I'm like, yeah. I really want to see that picture. I have it on my phone. I can show oh, it to you. Okay. Well, can, yeah. can I post it? on? Can I post yeah. it? Okay. I'll give it so, to you. Okay. I've, everyone, if you were wondering what that looked like, and if you even Googled it like I did, <laughs> we're getting the inside scoop and getting oh, yeah. the actual Kodak photo. Absolutely. Because that's a crazy story, too. It was a crazy story. But yeah. in, in my family, in my Orthodox Jewish family, that... Christmas poster where this Orthodox Jewish girl is wishing the entire world a Merry Christmas was like, oh, isn't that hilarious? Yeah. You know, we're just <laughs> fooling right. everybody. Isn't that yeah. fun? Yeah. You know, meanwhile, when you know the truth of my conception and of my identity, it's not fun at all. So that was always enormously, I mean, that has become very, that's one of the mysteries for me. I'm still confused by it. Why did my father agree to allow this, you know, this image of his in fact, non-biological daughter, paternity unknown, to be wishing the whole world a Merry Christmas. But that just he just feels so connected to you. It's like maybe it, it just that it didn't, just didn't matter. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting that you were growing up in a tr like a very very orthodox. You know, um, this wasn't just some incidental aspect of your life. This was like a major aspect of your daily life and your daily existence was yeah. Judaism and. Yeah, yeah, it was, and it was my father's, it was like sort of core to his identity. Well, and your whole family was sort of eminent uh, in that yeah. community, and it was, right. you know, it wasn't just... No, I was fluent in Hebrew. I yeah. went to a Jewish day school. I, yeah. Yeah. So, Danny, um, before I get to my next question, I had I know everyone's telling you their stories <laughs> of sperm donors and yeah. finding out these identities, but I have to tell you the story of my writing partner, Sarah, who had her child with a sperm donor, to make a long story short, she was in a music class with her daughter and she had gone on to the donor sibling registry and, and done a little bit of research, but decided I don't even want to go there. But her daughter started playing with twin boys who were in the class with two moms and they were just very much drawn together and it was very remarkable and everyone was talking about it and sort of a cold chill went down Sarah's body and she thought, oh my God, I think those may be uh -huh. Violet's donor siblings. Mm -hmm. And she went home and she looked at the registry and in fact, they were her donor siblings. Mm -hmm. And they are. And it has led to this incredible journey of Sarah becoming close with those boys and their moms as well as getting to know like 15 other 
donor siblings. So it's been a whole thing. So that really resonated with me in what I kind of felt was the most electric moment for me of the book when your donor father's wife said, you won't tell anyone else about this, right? As if there are other people out there, you won't tell them who he is. And it made me wonder if you are interested in donor siblings, if that would be a journey that you'd continue on. Yeah, it's, um, I knew where you were going with that story once you got yeah. to death. <laughs> of course, right. It's really. The donor sibling. Yeah. yeah, it's, um, personally, yeah, of course I would be interested if half-siblings appear, you know, on Ancestry.com or any of the places where I have spread my DNA around. <laughs> it's interesting mm-hmm. that they haven't, and I would not be surprised if they don't. I would not be surprised if I'm sort of a rare sort of like unicorn of like, I'm the only one. Because many of the people who discover that they were donor-conceived, especially, well, I was going to say especially my age, but that's not true. I mean, just all the way through, whose identity was hidden from them and then discover that they're Uh donor-conceived, then discover scores of half-siblings, like almost immediately. It's like there's this one-two punch of like, you're Mm. donor-conceived and guess what? You have you know, 37 half-siblings or 45 half-siblings or 18 half-siblings. And that's, I think, a very complicated thing as an adult to discover, as opposed to this generation of kids who are growing up who are growing up in communities where being donor-conceived is out in the open, Mm, where, where parents have disclosed to them, where there is a sense of being around, you know, lots of other kids, both related to them and not related to them mm-hmm. who are conceived in the same way. And so it eradicates any feeling of otherness or shame or confusion or alienation that goes along with the hiddenness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there's still hiddenness. I mean, in same-sex couples, there isn't that hiddenness. But still with heterosexual couples who have used donor eggs or donor sperm, there's still a fair number of people who do not disclose. And so there continues to be these secrets of identity that are pouring out over every generation right now. Well, and now you have your podcast, your wonderful podcast, Alyssa and I both listen to, Family Secrets, and you are able to start exploring more and more of these kinds of secrets, all different kinds of family secrets. All different kinds of family secrets. I mean, some of them are DNA-related, some of them are are not, or their ethnicity. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the way that I've been thinking of it, and, and this is being borne out as I'm traveling, is that it feels to me that we are in an era that is the era of the end of the secret. Mm. I mean, the combination of these easy, accessible DNA testing that so many people are doing, it's the most popular holiday gift now every Christmas. Families are getting it for each other. 12 million people. My mother-in-law gave it to me like a couple years ago, just Mm -hmm. like as a lark, kind of the way you did it. Recreationally. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is Mm -hmm. fun. Right. So last year, 12 million people bought these kids. (gasps) Wow. And out of those 12 million people, 200 thousand, no, I'm sorry, 2%, so that's 240,000, are discovering what's known as an NPE in that world, which means not parent expected. <gasps> wow. So that's 240,000 people a year. Just, just the people who are doing these tests, and there are all these people who are walking around like I was, who had no idea. But so many other kinds of secrets. But the one thing that seems true beneath all of that secret keeping is like, why do we keep a secret? Uh-huh. We keep a secret because underneath that there is shame. And if mm-hmm. we shine a light on it, the shame goes away. Because all we really do is, you know, we're essentially saying, oh, me too. Right. Some version of me too. Yeah. 
Coming up, we will continue our conversation with my former writing teacher, Danny Shapiro, but first this break. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, Danny, we need to let you go because you are in the middle of like a whirlwind crazy book tour. We love the book so much, but we have to ask you before we let you go, do you have a try this at home tip? We ask every guest if you have a concrete manageable resolution that you would suggest to listeners as something they can do to make themselves happier. Well, I meditate every morning. Mm. And I have for a few years now, there is an app that mm. helped me enormously called Insight Timer. Mm. And the reason why Insight Timer helped me is because they actually hold you accountable. Mm. The, the app will tell you <laughs> how many days in a row you've meditated. Ah. And at first I didn't like that because I thought, I don't want to be competitive about this. Yeah. I'm competitive yeah. about so many things. <laughs> but it actually held me accountable so that I wouldn't break my streak. Uh-huh. You know, if you have hundreds of days in a row, I mean, even if it's 5 o'clock in the morning, i got to get up a half an hour earlier like I did this morning. Or, you know, that... 20, for me, it's 20 minutes. That's a lot. It's a lot, but it doesn't have to be. That's a lot. It could be five minutes. I did five. I had to quit. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But no, that's, it didn't do anything for me, but that's impressive. So you have a serious streak of 20 minute meditation. Well, to be honest, while I was on my book tour, it got broken. So I'd like, I'm back to, you know, day two, but that was after I think 450 straight days. Wow. Wow. But the thing that it does is like, I, Think of my mind as such a busy mind, right? Mm-hmm. And we all have such noisy lives. And it's like my mind is like a snow globe that's all shaken up. And if I sit there for a while and I just watch my thoughts, I watch them come, I watch them go, and I catch myself planning, listing, yeah. thinking, yeah. noting, yeah. you know, perseverating, you know, whatever it is, I notice it. And if I notice it, then I can stop it. So I think it's that practice. It's just noticing the fluctuations of the mind. I think people think about meditation that it's um, that it's something you, that you can like excel at or be good at, or you're a bad meditator if you can't stop thinking. It's just noticing that you're thinking uh-huh. and returning to the breath. 
Well, Danny, thank you so much. Our listeners just loved this book. There's been just tremendous enthusiasm and excitement about your book, your podcast. I will put links to everything in the show notes. The picture of you as the Kodak Christmas person, the links to the book. <laughs> Her tattoo. <laughs> yeah, the tattoo. Many people have mentioned how much they love the audiobook and you listening. You have a beautiful speaking voice. You enunciate so beautifully. All these links will be there. If you haven't read the book yet, you will still love it. So thank you for being our inaugural book Thanks. club author. I am honored. Thank you both for having me. <laughs> thank you, Danny. So again, we'd still love to hear your thoughts on this terrific memoir. Let us know on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Drop us an email at podcast at GretchenRubin.com. As always, you can go to happiercast.com slash 212 for everything that we talked about related to this episode. Remember, whenever it is and wherever you are, there's always a book waiting for you. And that's it for this episode of Happier. We hope you love the book Inheritance and being part of the book club discussion. Soon we'll announce our next choice. Thank you to the brilliant Danny Shapiro. We so appreciate her joining us in the studio and answering questions from our listeners. Again, her memoir is Inheritance. Thank you to our executive producer, Chuck Reed, our engineer, Bob Tabador, and everyone at Cadence 13. Get in touch. Gretchen's on Instagram at Gretchen Rubin, and I'm at Liz Craft. Our email address is podcast at GretchenRubin.com. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. The resources for this week. If you would like the free manifesto for outer order, um, it's actually not in the book. Uh, you can get it at GretchenRubin.com slash resources. And if you would like to get an email every time there's a new podcast episode, you can sign up at GretchenRubin.com hashtag newsletter to get an email with the show notes for every episode. Until next week, I'm Elizabeth Kraft. And I'm Gretchen Rubin. Thanks for joining us Onward and Upward. All right. So, Gretch, in the crazy small world um, yeah. uh, vein, yeah. so, you know, Danny um, has a writer's retreat in Italy every year. Yeah. And one of the people she co-founded it with is Jim Shepard, and he was Sarah's writing teacher at Williams. Wait, so your writing teacher and Sarah's writing teacher have a writing conference together? Yes, in Italy every year. That is year. crazy. Yes, that and is it's crazy. our dream in life to go. <laughs> you gotta go. Oh my gosh. Yeah, someday. From the Onward Project. <laughs>